So I was feeling a bit nervous this morning because this sermon did not land until like 9.45. So I was feeling a little nervous about whether it would work because it kind of felt like it needed to marinate for another day or so. Uh, But then Anne gave me a blessing, and so I needed that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to do what I do and turn it over to God, and we'll do the best. Uh, I'm also going to break the rule that my homiletics, my preaching professor, told me in in seminary. Because every sermon I would turn into him would be like a 40-minute sermon stuffed into a 15-minute sermon. But there's just too much stuff to talk about. So, sorry, Dr. Wilson, but I'm going to do that again. Uh, Are you ready? Buckle in, shall we? All right, we're here. Some of us? All right. Uh, Let's start with a prayer, if we could. Let's bow our heads. So, God, here we are. All kinds of people from all kinds of places. uh, Ready to hear from you. So knowing and trusting that you will speak, that you'll take these words and you'll do something with them, uh, be with me, be with everyone, and give us something good, challenging, and inspiring to chew on. So Spirit, may you do your thing. Amen. Let's begin with a story that's in the Bible. It's one of the stories that almost everybody knows because it's one of the stories at the very beginning of the Bible. It's one of the ones you read before you get too bored and confused and just give up completely. And it is a story of of Adam and Eve. It's one of our foundational myths uh, that we can turn to when we wonder those huge questions of, of purpose and meaning of why did God create, and what is this world supposed to be like, and why am I here? These myths are the ones that we turn to to find those answers. And so the story talks about how Adam and Eve are in this garden of Eden, this this little patch of paradise on earth. And God, she comes up to them and she says, here's the deal. Come and partner with me. Come and join me in loving and caring for and growing this garden out from this little spot until it encompasses the entire world. We're going to transform this world into one where everyone has enough and everyone has a place. And we'll do it through these practices of grace and hope and justice and peace and compassion. This is what I made you for. This is where you'll find life as it was meant to be. And so Adam and Eve, they thought that was pretty cool. So they said, sure, let's do it. But before anything could happen, what happens? They mess it up. They do exactly the opposite of what God said. It took them one hour. So if you ever feel, you know, like a rumble with guilt and shame by, you know, messing things up and going the wrong way, know that you're in good company, know it's been a problem since the very beginning. And so instead of taking God up on her offer, Adam and Eve go and do the exact opposite. They practice conceit, they practice greed, and they practice selfishness. And then what happens to them? All kinds of things, we're told. As a a consequence for their actions, because of the, the... 
way of life that they chose. They get told that they'll have to work hard for a living. That it'll be hard to bring things up from the earth. They get told that reproducing will be painful and dangerous. And then they get kicked out of the garden wearing only fig leaves. Now, I don't know about you, but the whole, the strangest part to me in that whole, here are the consequences for the things that you chose bit, isn't that they have to work, isn't the whole pregnancy thing. It's that they're wearing fig leaves. Such a strange detail, isn't it? And over the years, commentators and scholars and Bible translators had no idea what to do with it, where most Bible translations just leave it out. They think it's just, oh, it's just inconsequential. It's just a leaf. But for those horticulturalists who are also biblical scholars, they know better. And they have an answer for why a fig leaf? Why would the writers of this story be so specific about the kind of leaf that Adam and Eve would have to wear as they made an exit out of paradise? Well, if any of you have ever touched a fig leaf, you would know that its texture is roughly that of sandpaper. And if Adam and Eve are wearing fig leaves, much like the way that a lot of depictions of them do, probably not the most comfortable thing to wear, is it? No, it wouldn't feel very good. There's nothing you could possibly do to make a fig leaf feel good and right. And so why would they include this? Why would they include a little bit about Adam and Eve basically wearing sandpaper as a consequence of their choice? Well, maybe the writers are making a point. And maybe that point is this. What we wear matters. Because the truth is, clothes aren't the only thing we wear. Once, and not really once, because this happens a few times a year, this thing, that go, this thing goes down in my house, and it usually unfolds something like this. Don and I were about to go out somewhere, doesn't matter what, and I say, I've I got to go change, I'll be back in a few. She says, cool, I'll meet you downstairs. And then 30 minutes later, she comes upstairs looking for me, and she finds me in the bedroom, staring into my closet, with every single piece of clothing I own on the floor around me, having this mild freakout. And she'll say, Nick, there's lots to wear, just wear this. To which I will always say, but that's not the problem. More often than not, the things in our lives that make us freak out, the things in our lives that make us disappear for 30 minutes and stare into our proverbial closets, more often than not, those are not the things that are truly bothering us. They're just a symptom, they're just a signpost. They're just how whatever it is that's underneath it all finds its voice. And now for those of you who ever had a moment of road rage after a blissful day, you know what we're talking about. You just erupt. 
For those of you who have just like lost it and bawled at the silliest commercial, you know what we're talking about. It's not the guy who cut you off that's the problem. It's not the WestJet Christmas commercial, as good as it is. That's not the issue. There's something else in the room. There's something else underneath it that those things are pointing towards. Are you with me? Anyone else experience that? Yeah, I'm sure we all have. Now, over the years, as this has happened again and again and again, I've learned to pay attention to it. And I've come to realize that the issue isn't that I don't have anything to wear. I've got plenty of stuff. The issue, I've learned, is that I wasn't happy with who I was. The pile of clothes on the floor became this sign of this malaise and this anxiety towards the way I was living. It wasn't the clothes I had a problem with. It was the other stuff that I wore. It was my attitudes, my postures, my habits, my rhythms, my dispositions. None of it fit. None of it felt right. And I wasn't looking into the closet for clothes, but I was looking into the closet for something my closet could not come close to offering me. I was looking for a new way to be and exist in this world. Anyone know that feeling? Yeah, I'm sure we all do. And part of the reason why scholars think that the story of Adam and Eve is so enduring, why it's been told for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, is because it in some way captures this this universal sense of malaise and anxiety. Because in some way it captures this sense that we all wear the proverbial fig leaves. We all stare into our proverbial closets. All of us are asking in some way or another this ancient and universal question of what does it mean to be human? What does a life that feels right look like? What kind of life fits? What are the things I'm supposed to wear? There's another story in the Bible. We heard it already this morning. And if we were a church that follows along with the lectionary, uh, it's one that we would only hear once every three years. That's a sign of how scary and intimidating it is. And it's a shame, really, because there's so much goodness packed into that story that we heard. But for today, we're just going to focus on one little aspect of it. So if you have some questions that are percolating from the scripture passage that you heard, uh, email me or remember them, and we'll see if we can explore those at another time. But the story, if you recall, it's about how a bunch of religious leaders and scholars and elites are trying to get in the way of Jesus and his movement. They don't like the fact that he's challenging their power. They don't like the fact that he's turning the entire world upside down, offering a new kind of world and a new way to live. And he's a threat to everything that they stand for, so they know he has to be stopped. And so they hatch a plan. And to give them credit, it's a pretty brilliant plan. It's pretty devious. Their plan is to bring before Jesus a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery and ask him, what do we do with her? 
Because see, on the one hand, what they were thinking is that on the one hand, adultery is against the Jewish law. Moses said, any man and woman who has committed adultery, they must be stoned to death. But on the other hand, they knew, if Jesus says, yes, they should be stoned, they knew it's against Roman law to commit capital punishment. And so Jesus would get in trouble with Rome. So Jesus has a choice to make. He either says, no, don't stone them, and he loses all respect from the public. Or he says, yes, stone them, and he gets killed by Rome. So they're like, ha, 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 we've got him trapped. They figured out how to get Jesus. And so they go, and they catch a woman in the act of adultery. And they drag her, and only her. The man is conveniently just not named and not mentioned. Even though he's in the law, they leave him behind. We could spend days on that. (laughs) And so they take the woman, and only the woman, from her bed, through the streets, and into the temple. The temple. The most public place in the city. So she's not just in front of Jesus. She's not just in front of the Pharisees. She's in front of hundreds of people. And she's probably naked given the fact that she just caught in the act. And everyone is surrounding her. And the religious leaders, they turn to Jesus and they hatch their plan and they say, what do we do with her? And if you have a feeling this whole thing is orchestrated, you're probably right. And Jesus, in one of the most mysterious passages out there, caught between a rock and a hard place, he bends down to the ground and starts drawing in the dust with his finger. And what he draws, we we have no idea. It's not mentioned anywhere. And while he's doing that, he asks all the men there, and probably loud enough so everyone else around can hear, And he says, whoever of you is without sin, you may throw the first stone. Then he drops back down and continues to draw something in the dirt. And one by one, we're told, beginning with the oldest, all the men drop their stones and they leave. And one by one, all the people who are watching leave until it's only Jesus And this woman left. And after everyone's gone, what does Jesus leave her with? Go and sin no more. Anyone else kind of weirded out by how Jesus ends that story? Like, I find it kind of frustrating. Like, I I, I want him to apologize on behalf of men to her. I mean, like, I'm trying to take down patriarchy. I'm with you. Doesn't do that. I want him to offer her compassion. Doesn't really do that. Like, at least a sheet would be nice. I want him to honor that woman who had just been through that, that shame, terrible shaming experience. But instead, all he does is say, go and sin no more. Like, how is that going to go for you? Go and sin no more, really? That's how he's going to end this? 
You're going to leave her with something that is so clearly unobtainable, so clearly shame-inducing? How is that an act of love? How is that gracious? Like, is that what Jesus would say to us after we stumble and fall? After we go through something like that? It's okay, go and sin no more. How is that helpful? How can we possibly live up to that command? What if, what if that statement, go and sin no more, actually is the best thing he could say to her? What if that's the best thing that he could say to us in that situation? Because what if, what if Jesus knew that after this, after being publicly shamed and humiliated, after being used as bait, that she too may find herself in front of her proverbial closet wondering what to wear? What if Jesus knew that she'd have to choose what to wear when she would see the men who once paraded her in public and wanting to stone her? What if Jesus knew that she would have to choose what to wear when she would see those men holding their daughters? What if Jesus knew that she'd have to choose what to wear when she would walk down the street and hear people gossiping about her? What if, people, what if Jesus knew that she would have to choose what to wear the next time she saw a woman being publicly shamed? As Rachel Held Evans put it, what if Jesus knew that she'd have to choose what to wear to avoid the irony of becoming just like her accusers? Jesus knew she could leave from that space and end up exactly like the men who paraded her and surrounded her. She could put on vengeance. She could put on wrath. She could put on anger and fury and choose that way of life. Or, or, she could choose something else. She could choose to go from that place in a different way, wearing something else. Jesus wasn't asking her to never sin again. He knew that's just something that we have to deal with from the fact of being human. What Jesus was inviting her into was a different way of being human, one that goes back to the very, very beginning, a way that's intimately connected with God, a way that brings us deeper into life, not further away from it, a way of being human that God gave us at the very beginning, a way clothed in things like grace, compassion, hope, and love. What if Jesus was offering her that instead of this? My friend John once told me a story about how one Christmas morning he woke up and he noticed that baby Jesus was missing from his nativity set. And so knowing that you can't celebrate Christmas morning without baby Jesus, he went on the search for baby Jesus, wondering where could it have gone. And after searching high and low, he found baby Jesus in the clenched fist of his daughter being held above the toilet, threatening to flush baby Jesus away. And so John yelled at her, You can't! You can't flush baby Jesus! We need him! 
And his daughter asked such a wonderful question, as, as only kids can. She asked, why? Why do we need Jesus? It's a good question, isn't it? We, all, we ask it here every single Sunday. It's something we talk about every single Sunday and throughout the week because it is such a good question. And there are all kinds of answers to it. Most of them are pretty good. But one of them, one of those answers is what we're going to spend some time with the rest of this fall. Because we believe that Jesus doesn't just show us what God looks like, but Jesus also shows us what being human looks like. We need Jesus because Jesus shows us what to wear. We need Jesus because Jesus shows us what it means to be human. And as people who from time to time struggle with what we're supposed to wear, as people who try on anger instead of peace, who try on shame instead of vulnerability, as people who are supposed to be clothed in grace, justice, love, and peace, we need someone to show us what that looks like. We need someone to show us how that works. And so here at Red Deer Lake, for the rest of the fall, we're going to do just that. We're going to spend some time in a series we're going to call The Things We Wear. And each week, we'll put something up on the coat rack in our proverbial closet. Things like hope, grace, indignation, compassion. And we'll say, what is that? How are we supposed to wear that? What does a life clothed in those things look like? And we do that because we trust from that story in the beginning that we're not invited into a life wearing fig leaves, but we're invited into a life that's caught up in what God is doing in this world. A life caught up in the practices of grace, compassion, rhythm, those divine things that hung with so much reverence. Knowing that is where we find the life that we're meant to have. So if you're here and you're struggling to find something that fits I invite you to join us for the rest of the fall. We'll weave in and out of it, but that's where we're going to hang out. Knowing that it's there we find the light and life that we're looking for. Amen. We're going to end with a hymn that celebrates what we're going to try to do. A hymn that calls us into the light, that calls us into a certain way of being. So as a church who is called to be the light, As a church who is called to be clothed in light, let's stand up and let's sing together.